ICU Rounds is a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. This is IC Rounds. My name's Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an Associate Professor of Surgery and Director of the Burn Center at the Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is IC Rounds. Obviously, a little change in the introduction there as part of the announcement that we have been uh, foreshadowing for the past several weeks. We have finalized our arrangements, and now IC Rounds is a production of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. We are very excited about this change. This allows this podcast to continue to grow and mature as an educational podcast for you, the listeners. Uh, and this will also allow us to marshal all of the resources of the Society of Critical Care Medicine into this podcast to continue to allow it to grow and be a free podcast focusing on the education of critical care medicine to all of our providers. This will also allow you to participate and share in the vast resources uh, that the Society of Critical Care Medicine has to bring to this podcast. And hopefully in the next coming months and even years, we'll be able to bring you uh, additional information from society educational uh, offerings, as well as the Critical Care Congress we just finished up in Houston, Texas, and hopefully bring you some guests that are preeminent leaders in the field of critical care medicine. Another exciting change is that I will be uh, editing the podcast that Society of Critical Care Medicine has had for the past several years uh, called I Critical Care. This is a wonderful podcast, I Critical Care is. It was started back in 2005 by a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Richard Savell was a visionary and saw that the benefit of podcasting could have in providing medical education to everyone, particularly in the field of critical care medicine. Those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, I Critical Care, it is also a free podcast that's available through iTunes and through your various uh, podcast collectors. The format of iCritical Care is different and will remain different from that of ICU Rounds. ICU Rounds will remain a podcast that will be dedicated basically as the a primary tool for education, teaching people about various topics in critical care or what's new in critical care. The format of iCritical Care is that much more of an interview type program. Each month, we will try to highlight several of the articles that are in the current journal, Critical Care Medicine. Those of you who have iPads, there is a new app available for iPads. There is an exciting new application available from the journal, Critical Care Medicine, that will link you directly to the articles, and it is the hope that we will be able to have you directly link with the podcast and interact with the podcast and the articles, so that you'll be able to read an article and then hear an interview with the author. That's an exciting dimension that the Journal of Critical Care Medicine is going to add with iCritical Care. So if you don't subscribe to iCritical Care, by all means, get over there, subscribe to it. If you have positive feedback on both of the podcasts, IC Rounds and iCritical Care, by all means, go to the iTunes page. Leave us positive feedback back there. My Twitter account is at iCriticalCare. We're always looking for new topic ideas, and people send me emails, and I really appreciate them, and I am keeping a queue of potential topics for the future, but now you can also send those on our Twitter account, at iCriticalCare. Many of you over the years of IC rounds have sent me uh, topic suggestions that are topics that, quite frankly, I don't feel tremendously comfortable with simply because those were topics that were outside my area of expertise. Now, with our collaboration with the Society of Critical Care and Medicine, if I don't have comfort with a topic, and there seems to be a lot of interest for that topic, I will be able to pull in experts from those various fields and provide you the information that you need. 
So getting to today's topic, the one thing I want to talk about is ultrasound. I am a huge advocator and user of ultrasound in the intensive care unit. Ultrasound is not only um, a helpful tool in the intensive care unit, it's being in, used in more common practice uh, in physicians' private offices for those who are doing primary care. It has been a long-standing tool used in the hospital emergency department, particularly in regards to the FAST exam and trauma. It is uh, their increasing use in the pediatric intensive care unit. And there is increasing use of being used in the pre-hospital environment. If you were at the site of, of Critical Care Medicine's uh, Critical Care Congress this week in Houston, uh, Dr. Holcomb was talking about how the helicopters that are doing transporting the pre-hospital patients for trauma uh, coming into University of Texas are equipped with ultrasound. They're able to do a fast exam and able to basically stratify patients who are at high risk for hemorrhage and hopefully get those patients uh, more rapid blood and fluid resuscitation. In my personal practice, I use ultrasound about every chance that I can get. Uh, we use it uh, to determine somebody's volume status is probably the most frequent. We also use ultrasound to get a kind of a poor man's look of somebody's cardiac performance. I don't mean to kid myself. I'm not a cardiologist or an echocardiographer, but I can get a sense of looking at someone's heart as to how the heart is filling, if there's any kind of wall abnormality, and whether we should continue with getting somebody a formal echocardiogram. Uh, we use ultrasound sound even after the performance of bedside procedures, determine whether there's a pneumothorax, and then there's always the use of ultrasound to assist in the attainment of intravascular access. Ultrasound is here to stay, and we're going to see it being used in increased application uh, in our intensive care units, not less. So if you're not up to speed on ultrasound, you need to brush up those skills. By all means, I'd recommend that you get to a good ultrasound course, and we will be talking about an available ultrasound course at the end of this podcast. One of the things that I was recently facing in our intensive care unit is that we were caring for a, a child who's about 10 years old, and the child had a horrible condition known as toxic epidermal necrolysis. And for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a condition where due to an adverse uh, drug reaction, the, basic, the patient will basically uh, start shedding their skin, much like you would see in a third-degree burn. And this is a life-threatening condition, and these patients are admitted to burn units typically because a lot of the nutrition infectious and fluid and electrolyte abnormalities that these patients need plus the large amount of wound care is really something that burn centers do very well. So it's a really uh, pretty common uh, problem to see inside a burn ICU. But one of the problems that we are commonly faced with when managing these patients is we want to make sure the patient doesn't get hypovolemic, but we are well aware of the complications of giving patient excessive fluids. So we want to maintain that adequate balance. And we use ultrasound a lot for this in regards to the adults. And the adults, what we will do is we will look at the patient's vena cava. This is very helpful in a patient who is not intubated, that you can sit there and look at the vena cava. And by looking at the dynamic movement of the vena cava, particularly during somebody having somebody sniff and looking at the vena cava try to collapse, you can get an assessment of the patient's volume status and an estimation of what their central venous pressure is. We do this routinely in our adults. And in adults, we have algorithms or tables that will tell you what a normal ultrasound diameter is for an adult. And when you have a patient performs a sniff, you look at the collapse of the diameter of the vena cava. And that also gives you an assessment of what the patient's volume status is. So if you have somebody who's not intubated and you have them sniff, that a collapse of greater than 50% of the vena cava diameter typically will indicate that the patient is volume depleted. Uh, volume overload uh, really is determined by having a large vena caval diameter that has minimal collapse on inspiration. So 
so we're faced with in this particular child is that we wanted to determine what the patient's volume status was. Patient like this with, with these desquamating conditions have tremendous amounts of evaporative fluid losses. You don't want them to get hypovolemic, but at the same time that there, the complications of overfluid resuscitation are significant, including pulmonary edema. So the question came up is, what is the appropriate diameter of a vena cava in a child? Well, we found the answer to that in a report reported by Kosiak and colleagues in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It was published in 2008. It's volume 26, pages 320 to 325. And what these authors did was they tried to make a comparison of the diameter of the child's inferior vena cava to the diameter of the child's aorta, basically creating what they refer to as an IVC aortic index. To study this, they looked at 52 healthy volunteers. Now, what I found somewhat alarming about this study was that they used uh, medical students. There are 29 women and 23 men, and they had an age between 20 and 25 years of age. So answering the question of what is the appropriate diameter of a vena cava in a child, to me, it's that perhaps maybe we should have checked on children. But the author's hypothesis was that from a proportional standpoint, that the vena cava and aorta should be relatively constant. And they took two sets of measurements at three different time intervals. There were measurements were taken twice initially at 8 o'clock in the morning. Then they took a second set of ultrasound measurements 12 hours after fasting. And this was to produce a state of physiological dehydration. And then they took a third set of measures six to eight hours after an intake of anywhere between 1,500 to 2,000 liters of fluid, or what they estimated to be between 70 and 90 percent of the daily water intake requirement. And this was to simulate a physiological fluid overload status. After they had these measurements, they then went to apply them into clinical practice for about a year in pediatric emergency departments. The results were interesting was that all of the volunteers uh, had a statistically uh, significant increase in body weight before and after the fluid intake. So they gained approximately uh, 0.75 kilograms after being administered the uh, fluid. And what they determined was that the appropriate IVC to aortic index value is approximately 1.2 plus or minus two standard deviations. And a standard deviation in this case was 0.17. Or restated another way that the appropriate IVC to aortic uh, index is 1.2 plus or minus 0.34. And that'll get two standard deviations in each direction. Obviously, there's no units involved with that because this is a ratio. The authors then took this information and they applied it in their clinical practice. Now, the authors of this paper, though it's uh, the paper is presented in Emergency Medicine Journal, the authors of the paper are actually pediatric nephrologists, and they wanted an estimation of how to determine volume status in these children. So for a year, they ended up applying this aortic ratio, but they also were comparing other patients uh, um, by other methods of ultrasound determination, by just looking at the raw IVC diameter, uh, looking at the aortic diameter, looking at the index of IVC to aortic index, and then looking at IVC corrected to body surface area in square meters. And this is where the paper really gets more anecdotal and less scientific, because all they're really doing at this point is reporting their experience by using this tool 
the IVC aortic index compared to measuring the other standard metrics of just the raw measurement of the vena cava and the vena cava diameter corrected for body surface area. The authors in this paper go on to discuss that there was another methodology described by an author named Cheriax and his colleagues, and they proposed that the optimal IVC diameters ranged between 8 and 11.5 millimeters per square meter body surface area on the basis of measurements of adult hemodialysis patients. So what you have to do then is measure your IVC diameter, then calculate the child's body surface area using probably a modified Du Bois formula and make that correction. And it was because of that complicated process that these authors felt that the use of an IVC to aortic index would provide more clinically useful due to its simplicity. Now, there are clearly some significant problems with this study because what we're, the initial question we had is what is the appropriate IVC diameter of a child? And it really turns into is you have to go back to that body surface area correction. So the answer to that question really is, is if you ask me, well, what is the body surface area, what is the diameter of a 10-year-old that's normal, then you would have to say, well, the normal IVC, IVC diameter ranges between 8 and 11.5 millimeters per square meter of body surface area. Therefore, tell me what the child's body surface area is, and then I'll tell you what the correct IVC diameter is. From a mathematical perspective, that's not necessarily prohibitive, but in a busy nephrology practice like these authors are apparently in, or in a hospital emergency department, that may not be particularly applicable. But what these authors did find is that the IVC to aortic index reference range is 1.2, and that's plus or minus two standard deviations at 0.17. So certainly keeping that number in your head of 1.2 as an index will provide you a rough estimation as to whether the vena cava in somebody who is of small body habitus is applicable. So I want to finish this podcast off again with a general discussion about the utility of ultrasound in the intensive care unit. It is a wonderful tool. I think in the past we have put entirely way too many pulmonary artery catheters in to assess people's volume status. Ultrasound is not a perfect tool by no means, nor is a pulmonary artery catheter tool um, uh, the perfect tool to determine things like volume status and flow. But taking, some, taking an ultrasound probe and laying it on somebody's abdomen and looking at the vena cava, be it a child or being an adult, is something that takes only minutes to do. It takes very little training. It takes a day or two an ultrasound course to do. And it can be done something by a physician, a fellow resident, nurse practitioners, and we're seeing increasing use of ultrasound in a pre-hospital setting. If you don't have these skills or want to uh, fine-tune your current ultrasound skills, I'd recommend you take a good ultrasound course. The Society does have an ultrasound course coming up on August the 29th and August the 30th in Chicago, Illinois. This is being hosted at the Fairmont Chicago Millennium Park. Uh, you can get information for that at the Society's website, www.sccm.org. There we have it, another episode of ICU Rounds. We certainly hope you found this informative. We do appreciate positive feedback. If you go to the iTunes page and leave positive feedback, that's always helpful. For ideas on topics, contact me on Twitter at iCriticalCare. And a reminder, you're also going to be hearing me over on the Society of Critical Care Medicine's podcast, iCriticalCare. Start downloading those and keep an ear out for us. Thanks for downloading. Have a great day. The statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and participants and do not apply an opinion of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, or members. 